Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a one trillion dollar tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk/greattalent to see how you can work, live, and move to the UK. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Good afternoon, Jim. It's nice to be back for our weekend edition of The Other Hand. As always, an enormous amount to talk about, and I know we've got some, a bit of domestic focus today. We missed out on that last time because there is so much going on, particularly in the UK, but also the US. That hasn't changed, of course. If anything, the UK is even more interesting from a car accident, car crash point of view. And obviously, I'm going to have something to say about what's been going on. There has been lots of inflation data, something you and I have talked about a lot in, in recent months, on both sides of the Atlantic, not least in Ireland. And I know you want to talk a little bit about that. I know you want to talk about um, some data on the Irish housing market. And just I'd add to that that all the signs are from the UK at the moment. The anecdotal data rather than the hard data is that we got a big softening happening in the UK. So all those things that we've been muttering about, there's 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 more going on there. And I think in the UK in particular, the property market, both residential and commercial, actually are in trouble. So I'd be very interested in the Irish perspective on that. On inflation, we got some numbers from the States this week. I know you're going to talk about the Irish ones, but the the inflation numbers from the States this week were truly awful. Um, But the market reaction was astonishing. The US market reaction, uh, equity market staged its biggest intraday turnaround in a very long time, one of its biggest in history, actually. So that that was that was really interesting. Before we actually get over to the Irish inflation picture and the Irish house price story, I just want to say an opening remark about what's going on in the UK, which is occupying everybody's headlines these days, and acknowledge that whatever we say today could be out of date by the time this podcast is over, let alone by the time I actually manage to get this podcast edited, produced, and up and running. So apologies if anything that we say is out of date. I think it's quite likely. We asked the question last time, would Liz Truss last until Christmas? And I said that I didn't think she would. I'm actually not sure she's going to last until the end of this podcast on the basis of what we've seen today. But we'll talk about that in a minute. Jim, I'll shut up now and let you talk about what you wanted to mention today, which is some data that we've got from the Irish economy. Good afternoon. Great great to talk. Um, can I throw a nice juicy statistic at you before I delve into the Irish economic story piece? Go for um, it. Did you, did you know that in 2020, there was 1,982 tonnes of cocaine produced in the world? I did not know that, Jim. I'm glad okay. I do now. 
Yes, I knew, I, knew, I knew that at um, Make Your Weekend. Oh, an incredible statistic. Uh, Did you know we... that, that, that the, um, you know, the Biden, or talking of drugs, let's go off on a tangent already. Biden, of course, has introduced an amnesty for minor cannabis yes. uh, crimes, and which I would certainly applaud because the, if there has been a war on drugs, it's not that um, that war on drugs, was, which I think was started by Richard Nixon, is still ongoing. I think the drugs won a long time ago, didn't they? 100%. I mean, th- those that 1982 tonnes, the highest level ever recorded, is indicative of total policy failure. To its undying credit, The Economist this week, The Economist newspaper, I think we're both fans of it in, in certain respects at least, came out this I'm week. huge. Said, yeah. Biden should have gone much further and legalized cocaine as well and went through all of the arguments for essentially rehearsing, you know, the, the fact that when you had prohibition, you created the mafia. Now that you've criminalized drugs, you've created narco states in Latin America with all of the crime, death, disease and destruction that goes with that. All of America's jails are full of uh, drug related crimes. All, all that's all that good stuff. So, so kudos to the economist for actually saying that you know cocaine should just become like alcohol and tobacco. Actually, that it should just be regulated, packaged, not advertised in exactly the same way. Anyway, sorry. Back back to far more interesting things. You introduced this topic of drugs. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. A few things to say about Ireland. We got the September inflation data yesterday. The headline rate fell from uh, fell to eight point two percent from eight point seven the previous month, and it was the twelfth straight month of inflation in excess of five percent. The rate was unchanged from August to September. In other words, during the month of September, average prices did not increase. Uh, but that, like every statistic, it hides a multitude. Um, during the month, petrol prices fell back by 5.7%, reflecting what's going on on um, international oil markets. But if you look at the components, and this is something that I have certainly alluded to for quite some time, food price inflation continues to feed through the system 10.2% in September. That's the highest rate we've seen in a large number of years. The rental market, 11.6%, remains strong. But all of the other elements are really related to the energy crisis. Uh, diesel, petrol prices, although they have come back on a year-on-year basis, they're still really high. Electricity, 36.2%. And natural gas, 56.3%. So we're still seeing massive year-on-year increases. And of course, that formed the basis for the budget we saw there on September 27, the 11.3 billion package. A lot of that was really aimed at trying to protect households and businesses from these energy increases. Um, There's a sense in some quarters that with the headline rate falling back to 8.2%, that the battle is won and that we're starting to go into reverse. Um, I, I, I don't quite agree with that. I still think there's massive uncertainty on the energy price side. And on the electricity front, we're going to see significant increases in bills and gas uh, during the month of October. So they will be captured next month. So despite the easing, it remains a very, very um, significant level of inflation. On the property price, um, I've, I don't know the number of times I've been asked in recent months, Chris, about where the Irish housing market is going. And the answer I 
typically give now is that logic would suggest a significant easing of the market in an environment of such intense global political uncertainty, rising interest rates. Um, the Irish economy certainly is showing some signs of slowing. And logically, you would expect over the next six months, there will be more marked signs of slowdown in certain parts, not all, but certain parts of the economy. So against that sort of backdrop, you would expect house price inflation to ease considerably. And um, the caveat, of course, is there is still a massive demand supply imbalance in the market. But the year on year rate continues to moderate. Uh, national house price inflation now running at 12.2%, 9.7% in Dublin, 14.2% outside Dublin, and indeed 19.1% in Galway, Mayo and Roscommon. So there's a lot of variation around the country in terms of house prices, but we're still seeing significant year-on-year increases from an already very high base and national prices during the month. Okay, the year-on-year rate was 12.2, but the month-on-month rate was 1.3%. So there's still price pressures in the system, albeit declining. So, um, and just a final few stats to throw out, which I think are interesting. National average house prices are now 2.2% above the peak they achieved in April 2007. Dublin prices are still 6.5% lower than the February 2007 peak. And outside of Dublin, prices, average prices are 1.3% above the May 2007 peak. So we're, we're talking about incredibly elevated levels of house prices, which from an economic perspective, I would regard as an economic bad. This sort of house price inflation, the current level of house prices and indeed rents, is no good for anybody. It is not good for the economy and bring on a correction in house prices. But what worries me is what might give rise to a significant correction. It could be a very difficult economic story. Um, A couple of other stories that attract my attention in Ireland. Um, Novartis, the pharma company, um, they have a thousand people employed in their global service center here in Dublin. Um, It announced yesterday as part of a global restructuring story where they're trying to take a billion dollars in cost out of their business, that 400 jobs will be lost in that Dublin business. They have other employment at Cork, but the Dublin business, 400 people to be left go over the next couple of years. Um, I'm not saying this is the beginning of something, but it always concerns me when I see these big, important employers like Novartis and a lot of the tech companies have at least at this stage announced freezing, sorry, hiring freezes for the moment. So I'll be watching these multinationals and their behavior very carefully into the future just to see how this might reverberate into the Irish economic model and particularly the corporate tax revenue buoyancy we've seen in recent times. My final point would be um, there was Centre Parks, you know, the UK uh, leisure company. Um, In July 2019, they um, opened up what was the biggest single investment in an Irish tourism product ever. Okay. Um, They employ 1,079 staff in the middle of nowhere, literally in County Longford. And County Longford is an incredibly economically underperforming county always has been you know one of the from a socioeconomic perspective it had amongst 
the worst set of statistics you could possibly imagine. But Senator Parks went in there to the middle of a Quilcha forest back in July 2019. They employ, as I say, 1,079 staff. They are on the brink of applying. Well, I think they have applied for planning permission to extend it further. So it's a booming business. But here's another statistic, along with the cocaine one, which I find quite amazing, that in the 12 months to April this year, Centre Parks in Longford took in 1.1 million euro a week in revenue. I mean, that that is a phenomenal story in rural Ireland. It's great. But my heart sank, Jim, when you said they'd applied for planning permission. Um, I don't know whether you've been following the planning permission stories in Dublin just over the last few days. There have been two, at least, very big Indeed. ones. There's one for an office block in the centre, which I think Umbor Planola have turned down. Um, because on the, the grounds, certainly I didn't read the actual judgment, but the way it was written up in the press just depressed me totally yeah, yeah. about um, people objecting for this, objecting for that because of lack of light, because of a shadow that might be cast by a tall building, because we don't like tall buildings. Why don't you like tall buildings? Because they're tall. Um, uh, we don't like tall buildings because the, the Dublin doesn't have any tall buildings, so therefore it changes the nature of the Dublin skyline, and so we can't have that because we don't like change. Oh, dear, dear, dear. And yeah, and so that building, um, subject to any further appeals, which I've no idea will, whether or not they'll take place, um, won't get built. Another, you know, Dublin is not allowed to go up. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. It's absurd, it's nonsense, but yet in 2022, late 2022, we are continuing. There was a residential in, um, planning thing for Ore in uh, South Dublin, uh, South County Dublin, in Black Rock, an area I know very, very well. Lived in Black Rock for a few years, and I know exactly where this development is. And it's all the same arguments again. Uh, you can't, you can't do this. Why not? Because we don't like it. Why? Why don't you like it? Well, it means that things change. And why don't you like change? Well, because I don't like change. And uh, does it matter whether people need somewhere to live? We have a housing crisis. No, of course, it doesn't matter. Build houses somewhere else. You can solve this crisis by building houses somewhere else, but just don't build them next to me. Uh, for fact's sake, Chris, I mean, where I live here in Terenure, um, there's a similar story going on at the moment in Dundrum, the old town centre. Uh, there's a dispute going on. Um, the Ben Dunn gym near the KCR, close to where I live as well. There's an issue down there. I mean, the, the the nimbyism and the objections we're seeing to every planning application is quite extraordinary. And I would certainly say that the two areas that are most exposed to nimbyism, to me, are the two biggest crises facing Ireland, if you look out over the next decade. One is housing, which we're discussing. The second is energy. Can I tell you what the solution is? Well, I've got two solutions. One is that you just simply elect a government that is capable of passing laws that essentially make nimbyism illegal and say to people who don't like tall buildings or, or just simply don't like things changing, tough luck, live in the real world. And we have to um, a cater to people in terms of ha having somewhere to, for them to live. And we also have to cater them to them for having a, a planet to live on that isn't too hot. Um, if you're not capable of electing a government like that, then let's have a slightly more pragmatic, less dare I say, a strident solution to the problem. And let's start paying people. This is the economist speaking now. So that if you are that person that is so offended by a shadow or some light or being overlooked, you live in the middle of a city, for God's sake, and you're worried about being overlooked, go and live in the country would be my preferred solution. 
But my second solution is start paying people. Start say, start saying via some fiscal route or other that um, we will pay you not to object to this development. So for housing, that could be, I mean, this is a national crisis. So maybe the national purse has to give people a few quid to shut up um, in, in terms of housing and office development. Let me finish, let me finish, let me finish. And in terms of these solar and wind farms that all the people in, in, you know, in your part of the world, Jim, I know you're not a Dubliner at heart anyway, but, um, you know, all you country bumpkins that object to their farms and, and rural fields being populated by wind farms and solar, just give them a share of the revenues. Just say the local community will get some extra money from the electricity that is generated by these things. I apologize for using that pejorative term, Jim. It wasn't directed at you or anybody else. Chris, if anybody if anybody's offended. I'm, I'm proud sorry. I'm proud to be a country bumpkin, okay? I know you are. I know you I are. I have culture blood flowing in my veins. Yes. Um it, it, actually you 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 bring up a number of interesting points there about the economist approach to this. You basically pay people. I mean that that happens. Um every wind farm development there is a contribution to the local community on an ongoing basis. Yeah. Give them some more okay. money then to yes. just make them uh, but, get them shut up. But a second issue is, um, and one that's very close to my heart, the development of greenways around the country and uh, the greenway in Waterford from Waterford City to Dungarvan has transformed the county um, and has particularly transformed my local village which is Kilmac Thomas um, always famous for one thing, Flavin's Porridge. It's now a much busier, bustling village with cafes and restaurants and so on it's just extraordinary but there was massive objections from farmers whose land it went through some of whom i know very well and um they eventually acceded and um they they never told me they never admit to it but i assume um they got paid make sure some money changes hands and that that, yes, that, that will oil the wheels of, of the necessary change and that that's the trick that we're missing you can appeal to people's ethics you can appeal to people's morals you can appeal to their self-interest in terms of the future of the planet but we have to recognize as pragmatists that none of this seems to work so just pay them off are you ready to enhance your future in tech then it's time to make your move to the uk the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Yeah. Chris, we're rambling. I want to bring you back to the UK. Okay, right. Um, I, I saw your comment on Twitter earlier this afternoon saying, Truss is toast. Yes. Um, if I want to throw another um, alliteration in there, um, it's I've heard a rumor about a BBB campaign starting up in the UK. Bring back Boris. Yes, that's been going on for some time, and I suspect Boris Johnson is behind that campaign, um, or at least if he <laughs> was, if he was a well organised uh, sort of chap, I would suspect he was behind it. But given his his, his infinite capacity for disorganisation, maybe maybe I'm uh, chucking arrows that that really don't deserve to be. Uh, he's busy earning money at the moment, uh, making $150,000 after dinner speeches. So I think that's going to occupy him for a while. 
Um, but yes, I do think that um, it, it, the conspiracy theorists said that during the campaign that Trust was running, he, Boris Johnson came out in support of her because this is exactly what he expected. And it was said at the time that he anticipated the chaos that she has produced. I watched the press conference that she gave um, in the wake of her sacking of Kwasi Kwarteng. It was an extraordinary, extraordinary press conference. So this is a government whose economic platform has completely disintegrated in the most crisis-ridden way imaginable. And with all of the questions and answers that she allowed, I think it was eight minutes in total, this press conference, um, at most. And to me, it looked like she just walked out after she was um, asked four questions, all of which were essentially around the same theme, which was, you've just sacked your chancellor for doing exactly what you asked him to do. You just sacked your chancellor for enacting the policy platform in which you have just been elected as prime minister. And there, there, there was not, you couldn't put a piece of paper between the two of them. Normally when uh, a, a, you, you sack, a chairman sacks his CEO or a football manager gets fired by a board of directors, it's because uh, obviously the results are wrong. But usually you can point to something that the manager uh, made some dodgy purchases of players that his tactics were wrong, that he didn't actually implement what the board wanted him to do, that there were differences of opinion. There were no differences between Quasi Quateng and Liz Truss. He did exactly 100%, not even 99, 100% of what she ordered him to do. So apart from the, you know, just the logic of that, is there's ethics and morality um, and fair play involved here, which of course I know we're talking about politics, but blimey, um, this is this was just nuts. So um, the performance that she gave and the manner in which she delivered her uh, non-answers to questions was was spectacularly bad. I think that it revealed, if you had any doubt, and I didn't, but if you had any doubt, she is. It's clear that she is utterly and completely out of her depth, not just a little bit, but utterly overwhelmed by the task that is that is facing her. The Economist newspaper, I mean, we've mentioned it once already this, this episode in the context of drugs policy. The Economist has, has a leader this week asking whether or not Liz Truss or a lettuce has a longer shelf life. Now, the Daily Star has, has riffed on this meme of uh, Liz Truss and the lettuce. And there is now a live stream on YouTube where there is a picture of Liz Truss and a lettuce next to it. And the live stream asks the question, which is going to last longer? Now, this passes, this kind of political analysis passes for perfectly normal debate in Britain today. This is, this is normality in Britain. So I'm tempted to be very rude to the Italians and repeat what I said the other day, which is that British politics have become very Italian-esque. But I do think that would be being pretty horrible to the Italians because we, we, to use an old-fashioned expression, we've jumped the shark. Uh, just, it is just extraordinary. So if there was any logic, reason, ethics, normality about British politics today, and of course there hasn't been for a very, very long time, uh, Liz Truss would be gone by tea time. Um, so, uh, but there isn't any normality. So God knows what, what will actually happen. I suspect that, um, you know, it's a 50-50 bet, maybe 64, six to four on. I think that we're heading for a general election. The only reason why they haven't got rid of Liz Truss already, as we're speaking, is that they're frightened that they can't put yet another prime minister in. Is this the fourth or the fifth chancellor we've had this year? I've lost count. 
Um, can they put in another prime minister without there being a general election? In theory, they can. But in practice, they're asking themselves, um, can they? And so from a purely pragmatic, what do we do next? We're rabbits caught in the headlights point of view. The Conservative Party is going to take its time to decide how and when to replace her. But they've got to replace her because she just clearly is not up to the task. Um, and the, the bizarre uh, demonstrate ways in which that are demonstrated are, are there for all to see. Now, you're chuckling and you're laughing, and you rightly said the other day that you can't laugh too hard because of the potential ramifications that this has. Because as part of what's been going on today, government bond yields have been going up again in the UK, um, which, of course, affects everything else. They're, they're, all financial markets are connected to each other, and in a small way, this has global ramifications. That's the day-to-day stuff. The bigger ramification that I think that we're beginning to learn from all of this is that the regulators, just as they went into the last financial crisis, which we hoped was going to be the only one of our lifetimes, the regulators in the UK have been asleep at the wheel. And an important sector of the financial market has, has gotten away with doing some pretty dodgy stuff. Whatever you're looking at, whether, as I've said so many times before, the, the, the complexities are many, the details can be mind-numbing, but usually, and perhaps always, it involves somebody using too much leverage, using too much borrowed money to do something pretty fancy that they had no business doing in the first place. And in this particular case, just as it was boring old housing in the last financial crisis, in America in particular, but also elsewhere, including Britain and Ireland, it's boring old pensions. They've been borrowing money. And there are two lessons that I take from this is that, first of all, there's leverage lurking in the financial system. Maybe it's in the banks. Maybe it's in things like pension funds, the non-bank financial sector. Maybe it's a bit of both. And there are going to be more accidents like the British one that we've just seen. That's the worry. And that that could um, be revealed after the next Fed rate hike, after the next uh, ECB hike, it could just come out of a clear blue sky in the way that the British pension fund thing did. But leverage is the enemy of financial stability, and the regulators have got to stamp down on it. The regulators have got to stop all this leverage in the system. That's the lesson that we're going to take out of this particular financial crisis, whatever the size of it, it turns out to be. And that includes making banks hold much more equity than they've got at the moment, by the way. That's a technical thing. But the regulators are still not on top of the financial game. The financial industry is still um, gaming the regulatory system. But, but Chris, is it not the case that the people who work in the financial services industry uh, tend to be much better paid than the regulator? And well, there, they, there are lots of structural reasons, yes. And there are lots of structure, and gatekeepers. Regulators yeah. become... Uh, they go into the asset management industry. But look at what's happened to the UK. The Treasury's reputation has been trashed. The Bank of England's reputation has been trashed. The Conservative Party's reputation has been trashed. The British asset management industry's reputation has been trashed by this pension fund thing. The implications are just so enormous that we now have to say, OK, well, you know, maybe we have to start paying the regulators more. But whatever we do, we have to, we have to stamp on leverage. The other thing that we have to do, and this involves all of us in all of our lives, because I mean, this still involves some of the work that I do. And it's, it's a mantra that I push very hard in, in the few remaining jobs that I have, which is that in the financial services industry, we're a lot better than we used to be, but there are still too many conflicts of interest. And as a general principle, you should pay for advice 
and pay a lot of money for good advice. I'd be a huge proponent of that idea, because indeed that's in part how I have and still do to some extent make my living. So I'll declare the vested interest. But when I come at you with advice, don't buy any products that I'm pushing at you as well. Make sure that the advice that I give you is disinterested. And I'm not saying, oh, yes, I think this idea is a very good one. And by the way, here's one I made earlier in my ass pocket. I can sell you this for even more money. No, sometimes you can buy product, obviously, from people who are offering advice, provided you can see that the in, your interests are aligned. But where there are conflicts of interest, run a mile. And I do worry, in particular, in the pension thing that's been going on in the UK, is that people were given advice to buy LDI products, then they bought products from the same people that were giving the advice. I'm not saying that happened all the time. I'm not saying the conflicts of interests were, were malevolent or bad all of the time. But what I'm just saying is that as a general rule of thumb, to avoid perhaps unintended bad consequences of unintended conflicts of interest, just don't have them in the first place. That's why we begin every board meeting, Jim. I know you've just become a chartered director, and Jim Power is available to become a non-executive director of your company as a result. Well, thank you, Chris. The, you know, I too attend board meetings. And the first thing that we do at board meetings in the financial services sector, if not other sectors as well, is that we all declare our interests. We have a, a declaration of interest to make sure that if anybody thinks that they are conflicted, that we can talk them through and that we can eliminate them. And if necessary, get people to step down. We're better at this stuff than we were, but I think that we need to make, get it on to the next stage. So that's my, my rant over. Um, I do worry about contagion. You know, this is a G7 country. We've already got Italy in the G7. Um, another G7 country whose political system and reputation for economic management has been trashed. So I do think that this will have much further to run. I think that those who ignore history are destined to repeat it. Um, you know, what you've described there in the financial services industry and leverage, you know, how many crises have we had over how many years for exactly the same reasons. You go back to the various third world debt crises. You look at the great financial crisis back in 2007, 2008. All of this, those crises have leverage at their heart. So what, what is interesting is that um, Kwasi Kwarteng has a PhD in economic history but obviously there was no history piece in that PhD because what he has done over the last three weeks, um, I mean, Rishi Shunak forecast exactly what would happen. And uh, I, I don't think it would, would have taken a genius to figure out that if you engage in this sort of irresponsible fiscal behavior in the current environment, particularly where the Bank of England is trying to bring inflation under control through interest rate increases and so on, that this was a recipe for absolute disaster. And that's what we've seen. What I, what I find interesting today, Jeremy Hunt has been appointed as the latest chancellor. Um, a few weeks back, well, whatever, a week ago, I think they abandoned the idea of abolishing the 45% top rate of tax. And now I believe they are going to, and I've been sort of offline most of today, but I believe they are going to reverse the policy in relation to corporation tax because um, under Rishi Shunak, there was a pledge to increase the corporation tax rate, I think from 19 to 25% the middle of next year. Uh, Truss's mini budget, and indeed it was her campaign slogan, 
during the Tory leadership election process. Um, one of her promises was that she would not do that. She would back down from that commitment. But I think they've done another U-turn on that. They are actually going to proceed with that corporation tax increase. And from an Irish perspective, actually, that's good news. But from a British perspective, um, it's just another U-turn. But funny enough, um, I noticed that UK equity market is a little bit higher today. Uh, UK, sorry, did I say the US? UK equity market is a little bit higher today. UK bond yields have fallen a little bit. They've gone Sterling, up again, though. Oh, they've gone up again, have yeah. they? Okay. Um, sterling strengthened a little bit against the dollar. It's gone down so, again now. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. Uh, I take your point, Chris, yeah. that by the, by the time this podcast hits the air, all of this would be out of date. But you'd have to think that actually today's developments, uh, in a relative sense, are slightly positive. Um, they are. And one of the ways in which they're positive, which, which is worth mentioning, is is the context in which quasi Quartania and Liz Truss entered, entered office, that they've been hand in glove, nurtured by uh, fellow travellers with an awful lot of right-wing think tanks in the UK. And uh, those think tanks greeted this disastrous budget of late September with some extraordinary series of tweets, as did their supportive journalists who are closely associated with this way of thinking. So there's somebody in the, in the Daily Telegraph called Alistair Heath. Now, remember, this is the budget that has led to Kwasi Kwarteng's uh, dismissal, uh, a collapse in the value of the pound, uh, the destruction of the reputation of the uh, pension fund industry in the UK, some pension funds threatened with insolvency. Mr. Heath, said in an article on the 23rd of September, this was the best budget I have ever heard a British Chancellor deliver by a massive margin. The tax cuts were so huge and bold, the language so extraordinary that at times listening to Kwasi Kwarteng, I had to pinch myself to make sure I wasn't dreaming, that I hadn't been transported to a distant land that actually believed in the economics of Milton Friedman and Friedrich von Hayek. Um, and he, he went on. Um, by God. Yes. Uh, so th there's um, uh, th all sorts of think tanks have uh, tweeted, written and proclaimed in similar fashion. And you know the names of the think tanks. Uh, usually the first question that you should ask of any of them is, how are you funded? No, I'm thinking of one in particular. Uh, but uh, they, they all have egg on their faces. I mean, that's putting it mildly. And we'll be very interested to see whether these ideological cockroaches climb back under the stones from which they've emerged. Sometime, somehow I doubt it. But, uh, but if, have if, they done so on Brexit? No, they haven't. No, and absolutely. One of the things that is extraordinary about all of this is that one of the reasons why you have this pressure on UK public finances, one of the reasons why notwithstanding the decision to reinstate the rise in corporation tax in the UK, there is still a budget hole. It's 18 billion smaller than it was, but it, you know, it's still a big hole. And that's because the economy is not growing. There are lots of things that happen when an economy doesn't grow. Real incomes don't grow. So if you look at real wages since 2008 in the UK, they haven't grown. Um, it's an extraordinary chart to look at. But the other thing that happens is that your tax revenues don't grow as they should. And the money you have available for public services, the kind of money that Pascal Donoghue has available for doling out in his recent budget, just isn't available to the UK. And your politics become very, very nasty as a result because you're arguing about a static cake at best, if not a shrinking cake. 
And that, that's what's happened in the UK. And there's a great interview with Mark Carney, the ex-governor of the Bank of England in the FT this weekend, in which he is asked directly the Brexit question by the FT's North America editor, uh, Ed Luce. And Carney, of course, being <clears throat> the diplomat that he is, refuses to be drawn, but does it via a clever quotation of statistics. And I hope I get it right. He said, when the Brexit referendum was announced in June 2016, the British economy was 90 percent uh, the size of the German economy. And today it's 70. That's extraordinary. An extraordinary. Ex- and extraordinary. Th- but the so the, the fact that the, the NHS is under pressure, the fact that there is no money for public services, for public services to grow in the way that they should be, um, has got an awful, it's not the only thing, I would never be that simplistic, but Brexit has got an awful lot to be blamed for. And the, the, the really galling thing, of course, is that these think tanks that pushed Brexit so hard will never, ever, ever admit it. They're like that um, Monty Python uh, general who's lost his two arms, two legs, he's carrying his head under his, uh, under his arm and, go, and, and proclaiming victory. Um, they're, they're like, there's a scene from The Charge of the Light Brigade, which is quintessentially British, actually. I don't know if you've ever seen that film, The Charge of the Light Brigade, which has contemporary resonance because it's all about Crimea, in which the Light Brigade goes in, they charge on their horses and are ripped literally to shreds by Russian artillery and other guns and they come back and the few straggling survivors go up to the general that's just ordered them in and they say go again sir i mean this is nuts this is just nuts the brexit thing is nuts it's failed it's failed on every level and yet they will never admit it so that's my rant over jim I'm gonna- yeah okay chris um just to before we wrap up to move across the atlantic we got um horrific inflation numbers out of the states yesterday um, 8.2% headline rate, but the core rate, which excludes food and energy, which are very volatile, but the core rate reached a 40-year high of 6.6%. So that suggests that the Federal Reserve is likely to increase rates by three quarters of a percent at its next meeting. Aggressive stuff. Um, and yet um, the S&P 500 yesterday, for example, um, it was 2% down early in trading, end of the day, up 2.6%, a remarkable turnaround. Why? Nobody knows. I mean, one of the best commentators out there is a guy called John Authors. He writes a daily email for Bloomberg, which is free. And well, anybody that's interested in the daily movement of markets, I'd suggest get a life. Uh, Don't be interested in the daily movement of markets. But if you are, read John Authors' email. And he wrote uh, in the wake of that extraordinary intraday turnaround of, of US equities. I don't know. Nobody else does. It's all to do with the computer-to-computer algorithms that are are driving things. And who on earth knows what was going on? Because it was dreadful inflation numbers out of the States. Very, very few, if any, redeeming features in those inflation numbers, worse than expected at both the headline and the core level, should have driven equity markets down if it was a normal uh, financial world that we're living in. But it was another reminder is that, you know, nothing is ever predictable, either in the short or the long term for financial markets. Chris, isn't it amazing? We're talking about all of these things that are happening that the highest, the lowest in 30, 40 years. Uh, The yen, for example, yesterday hit a 30 year low against the dollar and it's threatening to breach the 150 level. Uh, Extraordinary stuff. Um, you, You look at that inflation rate. The world is in absolute chaos at the moment. 
And um, I'd like to wrap it there by just two words that people who've listened to me speak in recent weeks will be fed up of at this stage. But my only view at the moment is intense uncertainty. Chris, I'm out of commission next week, so I look forward to talking to you uh, the following week. So um, I'm have a good to, one. I'm going to be doing a solo podcast next week because you're sunning yourself somewhere in the Mediterranean. And I'm going to do a solo podcast from Las Vegas, of all places. So I shall leave that with you, Jim. <laughs> you do that, Chris. Have a good one, okay? Bye. Have a good Bye. trip. Bye. Bye. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www cjpeconomics.substack.com You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify and other good podcast platforms. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.